Hello and welcome to In Conversation With, a podcast from The Lancet Neurology. It's December 2022 and I'm Sarah Passy, one of the senior editors at the journal. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Bo Ansis, who is the inaugural Daniel J. Brennan, MD, Professor of Neurology at the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. Professor Ansis has joined me today to discuss some new research in the field of Alzheimer's disease that has just been published in The Lancet Neurology. Professor Ansis, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be here, Dr. Passi, and it's great to be here and, and talking to you today. Thank you. So, firstly, uh, your study was done in people with Down syndrome and in people who carry mutations for autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. Could you please explain a bit about these populations you included in your study? What makes these individuals so important in the field? Thank you for that great question. So genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease account for less than 1% of all forms of Alzheimer's disease. However, it's a very important population because in those individuals, we know that they will develop the disease. Why it's so important in particular in one group of individuals, those with Down syndrome, is that those individuals are now living longer with the disease. It used to be that the average age or life expectancy for an individual with Down syndrome was 20 years. Now it's getting to be over 60 years. And we know now that it, the leading cause of death in adults with Down syndrome is actually Alzheimer's disease. And so in this study, we were very interested in focusing on the two large largest groups of genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease and compared specifically amyloid changes. We were very interested in amyloid because in both of these genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease, there's an increased production of amyloid. With regards to Down syndrome, there are three copies of the chromosome 21. That leads to increased production of this amyloid beta. And in autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease, there's mutations in presenilin-1, presenilin-2, or amyloid precursor protein, which also lead to increases in A-beta. And if we understand these genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease, we think that that will then translate to the more common form of late onset Alzheimer's disease. This has been actually shown in other diseases, such as in high cholesterol. When we figured out what was going on, we developed statins and they then worked and translated to the general population. So we think that these populations are very, very important to understand and can translate to late onset Alzheimer's disease. Brilliant. Thank you. So, so you just talked about uh, how you compared uh, amyloid beta levels and distributions in these two populations. And you use both positron emission tomography and in some participants you use cerebrospinal fluid measures. Could you just give us a, a brief explanation of why amyloid biomarkers are so relevant in the field and what you hope this comparison uh, might tell us? Right. So we, as, as you were mentioning, we obtained both positron emission tomography, so a way to take pictures of individuals to look at amyloid deposition. And we also did spinal taps or lumbar punctures to look at the cerebral spinal fluid or the fluid that surrounds the brain in both individuals with Down syndrome as well as autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. And we chose to focus on amyloid because specifically amyloid is probably one of the earliest changes or earliest pathological hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And in particular, we think that amyloid changes occur probably almost 15 to 20 years before an individual becomes symptomatic with the disease. 
And in our study, if we first looked at CSF measurements and compared them to PET amyloid measurements, and lo and behold, we saw an inverse correlation. So as the spinal fluid drops, the amyloid beta drops in the spinal fluid, there's an increase in amyloid deposition within the brain that we can measure by PET. We also compared PET amyloid with regards to degree of cognitive impairment. So we looked at individuals who were cognitively stable or normal versus those who were symptomatic with the disease. And we saw that there were increases in the PET amyloid in those individuals that had symptomatic Alzheimer's disease with either Down syndrome or autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. We also looked at the spatial distributions of these individuals and saw that they were similar, but there were some subtle differences between the two. And we believe that these amyloid changes are important for, for the field because they give us a readout. As you may hear, there are new drugs that are starting to be developed, and we can evaluate the efficacy of these therapies using these kinds of amyloid measures, specifically for genetic causes. This is especially very important because individuals with Down syndrome have intellectual disability, and it may be very hard to evaluate those cognitive changes. So other biomarkers or ways to read it out are going to be very important to evaluate possible therapies. Thank you. So in your study, you use this construct called estimated years to symptom onset or EYO. Could you just give us some background to this approach and why is it important? Sure. So as you said, uh, EYO stands for estimated years to onset. It's been a, a construct that's been developed specifically for autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. And how that works is, is that if an individual, if their family member, say their mother, has the disease and starts developing symptoms at age 50, and then she has passed along that mutation to, say, her daughter, and her daughter is now age 30, well, she knows in about 20 years she's going to become symptomatic like her mother. And so we use this EYO as a kind of measuring stick of when symptoms are going to be changing. Now, in autosomal dominant, it's a pretty reliable measurement, and we can change that years uh, within families. But within those individuals with Down syndrome, there is a little bit more variability. And so in the study, we looked at different age groups or different EYOs of actually 50, 52.5, and 55. And in any of those cases, on average, we started to see amyloid changes in Down syndrome at age 35 years of age. So suggesting to us about 17 years before an individual becomes symptomatic with the disease, there are already significant changes in amyloid in adults with Down syndrome. That's very similar to what we see with autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease, where we see changes within about 20 years before an individual becomes symptomatic with the disease. So could you briefly summarize the key findings from your study and just explain their implications? So our key findings are on first pass, there are a lot of similarities between these two genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease, specifically with regards to amyloid deposition. As I said before, first with degree of cognitive impairment, we see increasing amounts of amyloid deposited in both sets and both Down syndrome as well as autosomal dominant with increasing degree of impairment such that in symptomatic individuals, it's significantly higher than those that are cognitively stable. We also saw, as I said before, this inverse relationship between cerebral spinal fluid and PET amyloid. And then we looked at the spatial distribution of those changes. And specifically what we saw was, was that 
there were deposition of amyloid both within deeper areas of the brain, we call them the striatal areas, as well as in cortical, so in within the cortex of the brain. What was interesting is we saw amyloid both in the frontal region, so in the front of the brain, as well as posterior regions of the brain. But there were subtle differences, and specifically within individuals with Down syndrome, there did not seem to be a lot of amyloid deposition within the occipital lobe, so where the backpack part of the brain is. And so there are, again, similarities but differences uh, between these two genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease. So yeah, you've got this supplemental video with your article that's published on our website. So can you just give us a bit of insight into this video and what is it showing? Right. So we do this kind of time lag or timeline of how changes are occurring using that measure of estimated years of onset of the disease. And we watch and we compare both in those adults with Down syndrome, uh, autosomal dominant, and then difference images. And what you'll start to see is that there are there is deposition of amyloid in these deeper areas of the brain and the frontal regions. And then there's a spread throughout the brain in both of these genetic forms of Alzheimer's disease. What's again very interesting is, is that you, when you look at those difference images, there are subtle differences in the back of the brain, but specifically in that occipital lobe, there does seem to be a little bit of differences between these two forms of Alzheimer's disease. But in general, very similar in their amyloid deposition. Thank you. Uh, so final question, what does the future hold in the field? I mean, what is next? What would you be doing next? So these are really heady times in, in many different ways. So one is, is that, as you may know, there's been recent studies that have looked at certain drugs that are being actually used for late onset Alzheimer's disease using anti-amyloid agents. But if you also look, many or almost all of these studies have not included adults with Down syndrome. Now, there are specific studies that are looking at autosomal dominant Alzheimer's disease. And in the very near future, there is going to be a consideration of using these anti-amyloid agents for potentially for Down syndrome. And so using these kinds of biomarkers may be very important in evaluating the efficacy of those therapies. It is really heady, exciting times that we can now consider potentially anti-amyloid agents for adults with Down syndrome. It's brilliant. Yeah, it's very exciting. So thank you so much both for joining me today. Uh, such an interesting discussion about your work. You can read Professor Ants' research online now at thelancet.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of In Conversation With. And remember, you can subscribe to In Conversation With, The Lancet Neurology, wherever you usually get your podcasts. <laughs>